good to be with you this morning. Imagine with me, if you will, that you are trapped in a well, a well that you cannot climb out of. It's dark, it's narrow, it's damp, and if you do not get out of this well, you will die. Now, there's some good news here, however, as you're imagining, imagine this, that you have a length of rope, a rope that you have made yourself. Maybe you took some Boy Scout class in rope making, I don't know. But a rope that you have woven and braided together and you've taken great lengths and and great time to do it just right. So as you ponder what to do next, as you're at the bottom of the well, you hear someone from above. And they're shouting down the well to you. And the person seems to be shouting about some good news or something. That there's something about a rope that's hanging down one of the walls of the well. And they're shouting about trusting them and and clinging to the rope and that they will pull you out. But that just seems ridiculous. I mean, after all, it's a deep well. I mean, how, how could they pull you out? I mean... They're definitely going to need your help in doing that, you think. Besides, you you don't really have time to listen to them because you're stuck in a well. And after all, what could they possibly know? I mean, you're stuck in the well, and if you can get stuck in the well, well, then you can get yourself out of the well. Well, Really, you you don't know this person who is shouting at you. You you might not even be able to do, they might not be able to do what they say they're going to do. So why should you trust them and their rope? I mean, after all, you have your own rope, right? Well, there's just one problem, as my friend Alan likes to say. Your rope is only one foot long. Would you turn with me this morning to Romans chapter 10? If you're here with us and you don't have a Bible with you, you'll find Romans 10 on page 946 of the Bible in the pew back in front of you. We're going to read verses 5 through 17 this morning. And uh, if you've found Romans chapter 10, verses 5 through 17, if you would stand with me in the honor of God and the reading of his word, if you're able. Romans 10, 5. This is the word of the Lord. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down? Or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead? But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? 
as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. This is the word of the Lord this pray this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that we are not left wondering how we might be right with you. You have made it so very clear, so abundantly clear, and you have done that which we needed done, something that we could never do. And so, God, I pray this morning that if we hear your message, the good news, the gospel of Christ, that we can be saved from our sins and the punishment that justly and rightly falls on them, that we can be saved from that through the work of Jesus Christ. I pray this morning, Father, that those who have not would place their faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation. That today would be the day of salvation because, God, you are good, saving a people who could never save themselves. And so, Father, we pray that we would place our faith and trust in Christ, that we would understand the gospel, and God, in understanding it and realizing that salvation is for all who believe, that we would proclaim it, and that we would preach it and speak it to our friends and our neighbors and our families, that they might hear there is good news, that there's hope, and that hope is found <clears throat> in Christ. So, Father, we love you. We thank you. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Would you be seated? If you're familiar with the book of Romans, you will know that it is a tightly packed, well-structured letter. This passage that we just read, it falls right in the middle of Paul's discussion about the unbelief of Israel. And so I want to take a minute to kind of talk through the context here and help you see where it, where it fits in. Uh, in this discussion, Paul's been asking questions like, why have they not believed have they not heard? Has God rejected them? These are the things that are being discussed. And just prior to this passage, in Romans 9.30, Paul points out that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. How is it that some Gentiles have attained righteousness while Israel has not? And he goes on to say that Israel pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, but they did not succeed in finding it. And that's in Romans 9.31. So why did they not succeed? He tells us in 32 that they did not succeed because they did not pursue it by faith. And so rather they've stumbled over the stumbling block of offense that Isaiah had prophesied about, as we're told in 933. And so in 10.1 then, uh, we, we see this concern of Paul that he desires Israel to be saved. Evangelistic, missional heart of Paul for his brothers and sisters that they might be saved. And so Paul goes on to describe Israel's situation in 10.3. He says, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. And so here's Israel's problem. Christ is the end of the law of righteousness, he says in 10.4. So to pursue a law that would lead to righteousness requires that they pursue Christ. So this brings us to our text this morning. And then following the text that we just read, he goes on to say that, uh, uh, that Israel has indeed heard the good news, but they did not understand it. That God has revealed himself to the Gentiles and they have responded. And likewise, God has revealed himself to Israel and he waits for their response with his hands open to his disobedient children. 
And yet it goes on in chapter 11 to tell us of a remnant that is chosen by grace, not by works of the law. And with this in mind, let's think about our passage this morning. We're going to see four things here in this passage. In uh, verse 5, first, I want you to see very clearly that righteousness is not based on obedience to the law. So Israel pursued a law led uh, that would lead to righteousness. Paul points out that for Israel to receive righteousness from the law, they would need to keep the law. Moses understood that more than obedience to the law was needed for righteousness. And so Paul here quotes... Uh, from the book of Leviticus. But before we look at that, I want you to see what Moses has to say in a couple of places in Deuteronomy. So as he's talking about the law, where does he go? He goes to the law. He goes to the book of Deuteronomy, or to the book of Leviticus. But let's look at the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 10, verse 16. And, and you can turn there if you want, or maybe just jot these down. We're going to flip around quite a bit this morning. But in Deuteronomy 10:16, the word of the Lord says, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. Now, this passage comes on the tales of the giving of the law a second time at the Mount Sinai. God had given the law to Moses, and the people had already broken it. So that leads to Moses throwing down the two tablets and literally breaking the law, right? And so upon receiving the law a second time, Moses points the people to the heart issue. Yes, you, you need the commandments, you need the laws, but even, even beyond that, you need your hearts to be circumcised. We see this again in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, where it says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and that you may live. And so this comes after a discussion of the blessings of keeping the covenant and the cursings of breaking it. This comes after Moses acknowledges that Israel will experience both these blessings and the curses. After he says that they will be scattered among the nations for their disobedience, Moses understood that keeping the law was not the way to righteousness. The people needed something more. They needed their hearts circumcised by God. Something that God would do. God would circumcise their hearts. Here we see a glimpse of what it means to understand Jesus as the end of the law or the completion of it. Moses knew the people needed more than just keeping the law. They needed saving. But Israel didn't understand that. This is what Paul is talking about in chapters 9, 10, and 11 here in Romans. They pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, and they did it without faith. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, the stumbling stone that was in fact the completion or the fullness of the law. So Paul quotes Leviticus 18.15 in this discussion as evidence that the law does not lead to righteousness, where it says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. The point is that they are to live by them and that they are to be tutored by the law, as Paul would say in Galatians 3.24-26. through 26. So then the law was our guardian or our tutor until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now the faith has come. We are no longer under this guardian or tutor for it is Christ Jesus. Uh, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And so Paul makes a similar argument to this as here he's pointing to this passage in Leviticus to say you, you can't keep these laws. This is a struggle you have. Uh, 
And so you, you're needing something more here. And so we look at the book of Galatians chapter 3, and he goes right back to quoting Leviticus 18:15 there. In Galatians 3, verses 11 and 12, he says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith, quoting Habakkuk, where we were not all that long ago. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. And so as he's making the argument to the, the, church in, the churches in Galatia, he's saying that to try to keep the law is, is not what God's called us to. He's called us to being justified by faith. For if law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law, he says in Galatians 3.21. But one last thing, real quickly from Galatians. In Galatians 2.21, he says, For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So as he's concerned about what's going on with Israel, and he's concerned for their, their seeking after righteousness based on obedience to the law, over and over again in Romans, in Galatians, throughout the New Testament, he points them back to the fact that you can't keep the law and be made right. It is not within your power. If it were so, then Christ would have died for no reason. We need Christ to be saved. The law will not do it for you. Your obedience to it will not do it for you. Clearly, righteousness is not based on our keeping of the law. So just think about this with me. So that's Israel's situation. But what about you? Do you think that you are made right by keeping the law? You might not say that here at church. You may not say that to your family. You, you, know, you may know the, the biblical answer there. But in your heart, I just ask you to consider, are you expectant and dependent upon your being good, your doing morally right things, your attempt to, to be holy, to make you right with God? And if so, you're in the same situation as Israel depending on keeping the law and obedience to the law to save you, which it will not. Do you think living a moral life will somehow garner you favor before an infinitely holy and just creator? It will not. Do you believe you can do it on your own? You cannot. Are you clinging to the wrong rope? Are you placing all your hope in the one-foot length of cord in your hand? instead of the one dangling down the well from the one and only one who can save you. God has said over and over again in his word, the rope in your hand, the rope of obedience to the law will not save. He is holding out his hand to disobedient and contrary people. Will you cling to the only rope that will save? Secondly, I want you to think about righteousness that is based on faith. So we talked about a righteousness that is actually not found in the law from verse 5 of Romans 10. Well, if we're going to go on and look at verses 6 through 10 here, let's talk about a righteousness that is based in faith. And so this is the good news that we have for all of us, for every one of us, that we can be made right with God based on faith in the work, uh, in the person and work of Christ. So in contrast to the righteousness pursued through keeping the law, Paul points to a righteousness that is based on faith. So he does so in, in really kind of an interesting way here. Uh, he uses passages that refer to the law and faith in God's work. A law that points to Christ, who is in fact the end of the law, by whom through, by whom 
through faith we are made righteous. So Paul here combines quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 4, chapters 30, verses 12 through 13, and then ends with a, uh, verse 14 of chapter 30 there. And he applies these verses to Jesus and faith in him. So if we look here in Romans 10, 6, where he says, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart with whom, uh, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Throughout much of this, uh, this discussion about Israel in 9, 10, and 11, Paul is continually quoting uh, from the Old Testament. And so here, he's combined several passages to talk about this. So I want to look real quickly at these. In Deuteronomy 9, 4, he says, Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust, you out before, uh, thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Now, this passage in Deuteronomy uh, is is uh, discussing Israel's taking of the promised land, right? And, and as Moses is, is getting ready to, to die and the, the children of Israel are getting ready to go in and take the promised land, Moses points to them and he says, remember that it is not your righteousness that God is somehow rewarded by giving you the land. God is giving you the land because of the wickedness of those in the land and his judgment on them. So it, it's a reminder of, to, of Israel about the fact that their righteousness is not why they will possess the land. Israel has not done anything to earn entrance into the promised land. And so he takes the first part of that and says, do not say in your hearts, right, in, in Romans. And then he moves on to a quote from Deuteronomy 30, verses 12 through 13, where it says, it is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. So these verses come from Moses' call for the Israelites to obey God and live in the land of promise. He is saying that God has told them what to do. They need not go to heaven in order to hear his commands. He, he says that God's commands are near to them and they need not go overseas to find them. Israel is not called to do something to receive these commands. God has already done it. And so likewise, Paul applies the same thinking to faith. And so he takes these passages, do not say in your heart, and then skips on down to say, who will ascend into heaven? Or he, re he replaces, be, uh, neither is it beyond the sea, to talk about neither is it in, in the abyss, or you need to descend into the abyss. Uh, but he takes these to talk about faith. Israel does not need to ascend into heaven to bring the basis of their righteousness down. God has already done that in the Incarnation. Israel does not need to descend into the abyss to bring the basis of their salvation up. God has already done that in the resurrection. There is no need for work here. Israel cannot do these things. Only God can. For God has sent his son to be the savior of the world. God has raised him up from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Israel could not do these things. Only God. They cannot bring about their righteousness by works. They must seek righteousness based on faith. And then he finishes with Deuteronomy 30, verse 14, where it says, But the word is very near you, 
It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. So continuing on to verse 14, Moses tells the people that the law of God is near to them here in Deuteronomy. Uh, God has put it in their mouths and in their hearts. Well, Paul applies this verse to faith in Christ. Since Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, he says in Romans 10:4, it just makes sense that this, uh, this applies as well. And so the word of faith is in your mouth and in your heart. This faith that is expressed by your mouth through confessing Jesus as Lord, that Christ, who is the end of the law and by whom through faith we are made righteous, is Lord. He is not plan B, nor is he some optional afterthought to be added on to your order of the good life. He is Lord, the author, infinite in power, our master and our ruler. He is not your co-pilot. He is your only pilot. This faith is expressed also by your heart. By believing God raised him from the dead. His work is complete. God sent him to be the savior of the world, right? He lived a life without sin. As we see in Hebrews 4:14 4, and 15, since then we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He died a death for sin. As Romans 6:10 tells us for the death he died he died to sin once for all but the life he lives he lives in god god raised him up from his work uh, when it was complete and completely satisfactory if you look at acts chapter 2 23 through 24 and then skip down to verse 36 it says this this jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of god you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men god raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then down to 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And all of this is done by God. God the Father sent the Son. God the Son lived a perfect, a perfect life fulfilling God's righteous commands. God the Son died a substitutionary sacrifice in our place, satisfying God's justice. God the Father raised the Son as His work was complete, verifying that new life awaits for those who place their faith in the Son and His work. There is no re room for your works here. No pursuit of righteousness based on our obedience to the law will help. Jesus alone will impart His righteousness to us. Jesus alone will justify us, and Jesus alone will save us. So it is with our hearts that we believe the gospel message, summed up here by Paul as he said that God raised him from the dead. And by believing and confessing, one is justified or made right and the right standing before God and is saved. So you are not saved by an attempt to keep the works of the law obedience to the law you are in fact saved by placing your faith in christ alone and so it's a salvation by faith and so let me just think about this second point here for a minute with you paul points out that israel must find righteousness in christ alone through faith right so let me ask you are you trusting in christ alone 
for right standing before God. Is that really what you're doing today? It's just, just an opportunity for us to think about the gospel and applying it to our own hearts for a minute. Are you trusting in Christ alone to save you? Or are you like the Israelites, thinking that you need to add something to or cling to something else in order to be saved? Have you confessed and are you confessing Jesus as Lord now? You know, there are many who sat in churches for years and years and years and sat under the hearing of God's word and yet do not place their faith and trust in Jesus. And so I don't want to assume that just because we have church members and, and people here in the room that have been here for years and years and years that you are in fact saved. I ask you to think about this this morning. Are you placing your faith in Christ alone for salvation? We got to see wonderful examples of it over the last three or four Sundays. To see young people saying, I, I'm, my only hope in life and death is found in Jesus Christ. What a wonderful testimony that is. Is it yours? Do you think you can be justified before God some other way? If you think that, know that that is a damning belief. You will not stand before the Father, right before Him, if you are trusting in anything other than Jesus to save you. That cannot be said strongly enough. Please consider this morning, am I trusting in Him alone? If you can hear me today, I want you to know that there is no other way to be made right with God than through the person and work of Jesus. Trust Him today. Call on the name of the Lord this morning and be saved. Cling to the right rope, the only rope of salvation. Thirdly, I want you to think about this with me, that salvation is for all who believe. We look at verses 11 through 13 here. It's such a a wonderful passage, all of this is, but just thinking about 11 through 13 where he says, For the Scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Praise God, that means me. It means you. It means that anyone who places their faith and hope in Jesus Christ will be saved. That is good news. That is good news for our lost friends. That is good news for our lost family. Here he says that salvation is open to all who believe. The scripture he's referring to here is actually um, in verse 11 is is just back at Romans 9, <clears throat> excuse me, 32 and 33. And in Romans 9, 32 and 33, we have another compilation of passages, and, and we're not going to have time this morning to kind of follow those through, uh, but just know that, that there in Romans 9, 32 and 33, where he says, Behold, uh, why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works, they were, have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Where it says that, it's, he's using a passage from Isaiah 28:16, where it talks about the behold, I am uh, the one who has laid a foundation in Zion. He's connecting that with another passage in Isaiah chapter 8, where he talks about a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. And all of that is concluded with a discussion from Isaiah 49:23, where he says, those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. And he ties these things together 
so that people may understand that salvation is for more than just ethnic Israel. And part of the problem ethnic Israel has in this passage is that they have stumbled over Christ. The only way of salvation is the very thing that trips them up. And that is so very true today. The only thing that trips many people up is the only way to be saved. So many of our friends and our family, lost ones around us, think there's got to be some other way than this Jesus guy. I mean, sure, he's probably a good guy, but there's something else going on there. I can work hard enough. I can do other things. I can trust in other things to help me be right with God. And they stumble over Christ himself, the very precious stone that God has given us, the very precious reality of salvation found in him and him alone. So Paul quotes from Joel 2.32 here when he says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I mean, just real quickly, this is the same passage that Peter goes to in his sermon on the Pentecost, right? When he's talking about the, uh, the, that your, your sons and your daughters will prophesy and that the Spirit will be poured out. And, and here Paul's just following up with that, continuing on saying, yes, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved here. And he's applying this passage about God to Christ, right? Because in Joel, the Lord is talking about God. And here... Paul is talking about Christ. And so just a a quick thought here that this is one of the many places where we see Paul saying that Jesus is, in fact, God. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What does that mean? What's the application or the implication of that for us? I mean, it ought to be obvious, right? Salvation is available for all who call on him. There's, There's good news in that. When you go and share the gospel with somebody, if they call on the name of the Lord, they'll be saved. It's not your responsibility in sharing the gospel. When we go out and we proclaim the good news, we proclaim. They hear, they believe, they call, we proclaim. But there's goodness in that because I don't have to worry about, well, I don't know if this person is going to accept the gospel or not. It's proclaim the gospel. They trust in the Lord, they'll be saved. What a wonderful truth that is. So that gives us boldness to go out and share. I mean, it's it's not up to you to make them believe. It's not up to you to convince them. You speak the truth. Speak the truth boldly, faithfully, thankfully, because we are too, uh, we too are participants in this, uh, that we are saved by the work of Jesus. God does the work. And so uh, as we look here, salvation is for all those who call on the name of the Lord. But I want you to think about this as well. When you think about uh, uh, our church family here, our, our greater church family in you know, Southern Baptist in Oklahoma, uh, however you want to think about this, but very specifically here, This salvation does not discriminate between ethnicities, right? There's no Jew or no Greek here. Ethnicity is not the issue. This salvation does not discriminate based on socioeconomic factors. And so this is not to say that everyone is going to be saved, right? Uh, For they must call on the name of the Lord and believe in a gospel which convicts them of sin and calls them to holiness and repentance. But when they call on the name of the Lord, they are saved And they are a part of his family. And so my question for us today is, do we discriminate based on ethnicity or socioeconomic factors as we think about who we share the gospel with, who we feel comfortable having in our building, right? The gospel's for all. We've got a a community filled with people from all nations, every tribe and every tongue, it seems like, right? I mean, if you teach in the school, God bless you. You know, I mean, you've got your work cut out for you. What an incredible opportunity. 
And I just have to ask, are we proclaiming the gospel to those people? Or are we discriminating by our silence? Not, not maybe actively, but passively. So I just encourage you, proclaim the gospel to all. And the same is true in socioeconomic factors, right? When we look across our, the congregation here, are we from all parts of life? If not, I mean, that, that may be you know, just the way it is, but, but are we professing the gospel to those who are doing better than we are in life? For those that are struggling in life, do we, do we limit who we share the gospel with based off of the type of people we like to be around? And if so, we're not representing this passage very well as believers, that salvation is for all. So I just want us to think about those things. It's so very important that when we look at God's word, we, we apply it into our own hearts and lives. And so uh, as, as he calls the, the, the Jews to see that the gospel is for the Gentiles, May we, may we, in like order, consider what that means for us. So may God's church not discriminate where God does not. Fourthly, proclamation leads to salvation. When we look at verses 14 through 17, since calling on the name of the Lord leads to salvation, Paul quickly goes to this kind of logical structure. He pursues it and he says, well, if they're going to call, they have to believe. And if they're going to believe, they have to hear. And if they hear... Uh, In order for them to hear, someone has to preach. And if somebody preaches, that means somebody has to be sent. And he quotes Isaiah 52, 7 there. How beautiful upon the mountain are the feet of those who bring the good news, who publish peace, who bring good news of happiness and publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And so as he looks at this, he's, he's saying righteousness is found in faith. And this righteousness, this salvation is for all. And if it's for all, then they need to hear. Because if if they don't hear, they can't believe. And if they don't believe, they can't call. Is that the problem Israel has? He's going to go on and say, no, that is not the problem Israel has. They have in fact heard. However, it still stands that that is the general way in which God works. And so I must ask us, are we proclaiming the gospel? Do we faithfully, faithfully go out and share the good news of Jesus. Because if they don't hear the good news of Jesus, they cannot believe. And if they don't believe, they cannot call on the name of the Lord to be saved. And so God has left us here, if you will, to be a part of a a glorious thing he does in proclaiming the gospel to those around us. And his redeeming work of others, he allows us to be the one who speaks the good news. Are we doing that? Are we being faithful to that? As a church, are we preaching the gospel to those around us? As individuals, as you personally, there in your pew, are you proclaiming the gospel to your friends and your families and those around you? Because eternity hangs in the balance. You don't know how long they have. Are you proclaiming the gospel? Again, it's not our responsibility. It is our responsibility to proclaim. As a church... I want to ask us this. Who are we sending out? Who are we sending out to preach? Who are we preparing to preach? We think about, think about our Sunday school classes, adult, children's. Who is being prepared to go and proclaim the good news to the next generation? Are we, are we being faithful 
to prepare, to send people out again. This is something that God works in. It's not simply us, but, but are we seeking and pursuing the idea of preparing people that they might do that? That, that the next pastor of First Baptist Church, Guyman, might very well come from our congregation. Maybe they're in your second grade Sunday school class. Are we, are we thinking about those kind of things, preparing? Are we actively sending out those to share the gospel? So in Romans 10:17, he says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Here, the hearing refers to the preaching about Christ. And so he's faced with the dilemma here at the end of the passage that we're reading of, of well, if they've heard, they've not believed, right? As he's uh, quoting a passage there. And uh, he's going to go on and talk about the fact that they, they, they don't believe, but they have indeed heard and so there's this, this dilemma of we don't have control of how it all works out, right? We, we proclaim the truth, but I can't make them believe. I can't make them call on the name of the Lord. And so Paul is seeking that Israel's, the Israelites might be saved. He's seeking that they might hear the gospel, realizing and, and pointing to the fact that they have heard and are not understanding and are not listening. And in 21, he goes on, of chapter 10, he goes on to say, but of Israel, he says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. This is being God. And so there's this reality of disobedience and hard hearts out there. So thinking about those two ropes, there's the wrong rope, the little one-foot cord that you've waved together that could never get you out of the well. Are you trusting in that? Are you trusting on your own doing to save you? Or are you trusting in the right rope, the only rope that will save you? The rope is faith in Jesus Christ in his work, that he would pull you up out of death itself and redeem you and make you a new creation and save you and reconcile you to himself. This is what we are to proclaim to those around us today, the only way of salvation. So are we sending anyone today? Who are we sending? Do you proclaim the good news to those around you? Do you limit your social interactions and worship of God based on ethnicity, economic situation, or political opinions? Does your life give evidence of salvation for all? Do you live like something must be added to Christ and what he has done? If so, you don't know him. Do you believe Jesus' person and work are sufficient? Does your life profess Jesus as Lord? And are you trusting in your works to make you right with God? And if, not, you are, if so, you are not right with God. More importantly, are you trusting in faith alone, a faith in Jesus Christ and his work to because if you are, you are saved and redeemed forever. And to the praise and glory of God, the great Savior of us all, who place our faith in him. And so as we close here, I just want to call you to think, do I know the Lord? Am I trusting him? And it doesn't matter where you're at in life. It doesn't matter if, if you're addicted to pornography. It doesn't matter if some heinous sin has taken over your life. You can still place your faith and trust in Christ alone and be saved from your sin and be saved from God's judgment on sin and be right with him. And so today, call upon him and be made right with him. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that it is not dependent upon us to save ourselves, for we would never be saved. Lord, our rope is just not long enough. Our imperfection, our disobedience, our sinfulness, our unrighteousness keep us from you. But you, 
in glorious splendor, in majesty, and in wonder, offer salvation to us through the work of Jesus. Jesus, you, you come and make us your people by doing the work that we could never do, by being the person we could never be, by making a substitutionary atonement for us, and then giving your righteousness to those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. So God, may you be praised this morning. Jesus, may you be praised this morning. And Father, I pray that salvation would come to those who call on your name this morning. They would turn from their sins and they would follow after you. That they would believe and confess that Jesus is Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.